I'm uh, not at all today reciting something that I have rehearsed or hitting play on a performance because God gave me skills to be able to communicate and be comfortable in this moment where most people get really nervous. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I, I could easily hit play on a talent that God gave me. God downloaded something to me for our church that is more clear than anything he has ever given me, not just during the time that our church has existed, but in my entire life. And so when I tell you the name of this series and where we're going to be walking in the word of God, I hope you know that it is special that you're here today. It is special if you're tuned in online. And I believe that it's not an accident that you're here. You didn't get here by random combinations of circumstances. You got here because God wanted you to hear from his word. And we have a choice today as a church, whether we will be obedient with what we are all hearing or whether we will turn away like so many and be forgetful and distracted. This sermon series is called Remnant. Remnant. Can you look at somebody next to you and say remnant? Remnant. Not a word many people use. The meaning of this word is a group that remains. So when you use the word remnant, you're usually talking about a large group that has been dwindled down. Whether we're talking about a nation or a movement, when the Bible talks about a remnant, it talks about a few that remain. So when the scriptures in Genesis talk about Joseph, it says Joseph was placed in Egypt to preserve a remnant for the people of God. When Elijah thinks that he is the only prophet left who has not bowed his knee or given his lip service to Baal, God says, no, I've got a remnant. I have preserved thousands that you don't even know about. God always has a remnant. God had a remnant when the people of God were taken into captivity and exile in Babylon. Guys like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, you read that story. God always has this remnant of people where if you think about that story in particular, they, all of the nation gets taken into exile, and it's like this chosen few are still being faithful, praying to God. These few who have been formed by what they know to be true about their God are not eating the food that they're not supposed to eat. They're not falling into the culture. And they preserve what's called a remnant. And the reason why this word caught my attention this year is because I've been paying attention to the research of a pastor named Mark Sayers. If you've never heard that name, he's written a few books, one called Disappearing Church and one called Reappearing Church. And his research over the years is just brilliant. You listen to him for five minutes, and you're like, this man knows more in a few little thoughts than I could ever learn, and he has an Australian accent, which makes him sound 50 times smarter, and it's like, this is unbelievable. So his research is all about movements, particularly in local churches, and his argument is most churches follow the same trajectory when they become a move of God. And most churches that see like humble beginnings and experience a bunch of growth have a very predictable pattern that leaders need to be aware of. The first of this pattern is called the remnant. And it's when a group of people is together dreaming about God doing something new and actually committing themselves to prayer. These are the early days. This is when you're, you're on your knees going, God, we want something new for our city. We want something new for our community. And what happens is, as those prayers start to rise up through a united group of people, the Holy Spirit breathes on something and it starts to grow. 
And so as things start to grow, leadership is more and more tempted to create systems, and you actually have to create systems so that you're able to accommodate and lead people well through the growth. And so churches, what they'll do is they'll create systems to accommodate for, okay, we got this many people, we got this many staff, we got this much money, and we'll start these buildings, and we'll spread out, and we'll communicate, and we'll have groups, and we'll have this and this and this. And so you, or you hyper-organize, which is good, but what he warns leaders of is that when this happens, the tendency of almost every single church is to cater to the masses and drown out the remnant. And what happens is you start doing ministry in a way that caters to this sea of people who are new and over and over and over again. It's very subtle. It's nothing that anybody intends to do at the beginning, but you end up ignoring the very thing, the power of the Holy Spirit that got you to where you are. And so you start to look more like an organization with a business model than a church that is fueled and powered by the Holy Spirit. And so I just read that, and I thought, what would it look like? Because obviously I'm telling the story of Auburn Community Church over the course of seven years, and We've grown, we're building a building down the street, we're starting new locations, it's a lot. So I'm hearing all of this and I thought, okay, with an awareness of the typical pattern, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind if you see a new way. So what if, instead of spending the future of this church catering to the masses and drowning out the remnant, what if for the rest of the time that we get the opportunity to be a part of this church, we invite the masses to be a part of the remnant. Like, what if we made it normal to go, hey, it's not weird to have a vibrant prayer life. It's not weird to sit alone with the word of God and know that you are hearing from the God of the universe. It doesn't have to be strange for you to be growing spiritually into someone that the world would look at and say, that's weird, you're too into that, you're too serious about that. What would it look like if the remnant became what was normal and what was taught to and preached to and thought about and we just kind of engulfed ACC with this remnant mentality that we are the people of God who have brought into close proximity with Jesus and then this, this will blow your mind. There's a moment in the scriptures where Jesus invites the masses to be a part of the remnant. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon ever preached. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the core teachings of what it means to exist in the kingdom of God that Jesus brought to planet Earth. But when you read it, you'll notice that even though Jesus is on a mountainside with thousands of people listening, he's only talking to his disciples. And what he's doing is he's talking about the inner workings of what it means to exist in this new family that he's creating, but he's inviting the masses to go, if you want to know what it looks like to exist in my kingdom, in my family, here it is, you're invited, but I'm not about to change up my method of teaching these guys and growing their faith. I'm inviting the masses in to what it means to walk in the kingdom of God and in the family of God. So at the beginning of Matthew, there's a genealogy in most genealogies in the Bible, you just skip over, you like the son of, the son of, all these weird names that I don't know how to pronounce. But the one in Matthew is very important because Matthew chapter one begins with two names. One of them is a patriarch named Abraham and one of them is a king named David. The reason why Matthew does that is because the theme of Matthew is the family of God and the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is born to the patriarch, Abraham, the father of our nation, and he's born to the ultimate king, David, who was promised to have someone in his line sitting on the throne of Israel forever. What Matthew's trying to get across is that the kingdom of God has come down on planet earth, and it's a family, and it's a brand new way of living. And watch this. The Sermon on the Mount is our guidelines for what it means to live in the culture of the kingdom of God. It's not our guidelines for how to get into the kingdom of God, but it is our guidelines for, hey, once you're in, this is how we live. And y'all, I've heard the Sermon on the Mount butchered and botched so many times. If you hear this preached, you'll hear it preached in such a way where it's like, listen, this is like the the hyper growth strategy. Like if you really want to get serious about your faith, you want to be an expert Christian, you do the Sermon on the Mount. But most Christians just stay over in Romans and stay somewhere else where you know how to navigate that because we don't really know what to do with gouge your eye out and cut your hand off and some things that Jesus likes to preach. And so we usually just go, hey, this is for expert Christians. Or this is how I've heard it from preachers who I love and respect. Or I've heard it said, you know what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount? He's giving us the impossible standard of obedience that it takes to walk in the kingdom of God. He's getting us to the end of ourselves so that we realize, oh, I can't do any of this stuff. I need a savior. And, and listen, some of it's true. Like you do need a savior and you are supposed to get to the end of yourself. That's just not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever takes what I just said and puts it into practice is like someone who built their house on rock-solid foundation. The wind came, the storms blew, beat against the house, and it did not fall. But other people, if you take what I said and don't use it and don't put it into practice, it's, you're like somebody who built your house on sand. And the winds came, the storms blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus' intention with the Sermon on the Mount is not an impossible standard that can't be met. It's an invitation for the masses to jump in and be a part of the few who are actually living this way. If you are a Christian, the Sermon on the Mount is your guidelines for living. It is the manifesto of Jesus. There is nothing that we have been given that has more direct, practical application to our lives that's more important than the Sermon on the Mount. And for too many of us, I told our staff this this week, for way too many of us, we prefer a Jesus who would just like, be dying up on a cross, and we prefer to have like Paul and Peter and John and James explain to us what's happening. No, you, you, Jesus, you just be quiet up there because when you say stuff, we don't really know what you're talking about. But when you die and they explain it to me, it makes sense. And I'm not knocking those writers. That's the word of God given to us. But too many of us, myself included, if we were able to wake up to something, we would realize that many of us have made Jesus our savior and Paul our Lord. And we've gone, Jesus is the one who, who died to save me. Now, Paul, let me read Romans again. Will you explain to me what in the world was he doing and how was I saved? And tell me about the part where he did it all and I have to do nothing because that makes me really comfortable. That makes me feel awesome. I don't really like messing with James because he's, you know, um, but, but Paul, Paul, you just tell me about being justified. And listen, all these doctrines are true. But what we've done is, is we've completely passed over and ignored the explicit teachings of our rabbi who invites us to follow him. We've just thrown it even, watch this, even in our creeds. Have you noticed in the Apostles' Creed, there is nothing about the life of Jesus? Born, dead, buried, risen. Like, don't pay attention to what he taught. Don't pay too close attention because we know he's going to die and rise again. He's going to do that on our behalf. And that's the important part that we intellectually agree to the fact that that happens so we can have eternal fire insurance one day. And, and this is stuff that you have been taught your whole life for how Christianity works. 
And I'm just telling you, when you look at what's called the corpus of scripture, cover to cover, and the story that God is writing, that is the furthest thing from what you actually read when you read the words that Jesus taught. He is not teaching a model where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm giving you some things to do, but don't worry about obedience because I know you can't do it and I'm gonna die to save you anyway. Make sure you pray the prayer and if you're feeling like you wanna grow in this stuff, you can actually try to obey, but it's futile anyway and you can apologize to me later. And so here's my, here's my dream for this series and I promise we're gonna open the word of God. Y'all, I'm so sorry. It's gonna go so much longer than I thought. Um, I told him it was gonna be short today. How funny is that? All right, here, here's my prayer for Remnant. You guys ready? This is what we're praying for. This is what we're believing in. Can you put that line on the screen? Or I'll just read it off my notes. We don't. Okay. God, transform us from being consumers of Jesus' merit to being disciples of Jesus' way. Transform Auburn Community Church from being consumers of Jesus' merit. What does that mean? That means you only come to Jesus for the forgiveness you need lately. So Jesus, I need you to remind me that this has been paid for. I need your merit because Corinthians teaches us that he made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God, I need your righteousness, and I just want to consume your merit. And that is awesome. But what Jesus is dreaming about and what we're dreaming about for ACC is that there would be a remnant that would rise up and go, I'm not willing to just settle for apologizing for what I've done lately and feeling better about myself until I do it again, like I'm planning to, even as I pray for forgiveness. I'm dreaming about the day where my ways, the pattern of my life actually starts to look like the pattern of Jesus's life, because that's what it means to be a disciple in the first place. In case you're wondering why your whole relationship with God for some of you is a binge purge cycle of sin, it's because you were taught and implemented a gospel where you get justified by grace and re-justified every time you mess up. And all it is is this up and down roller coaster ride of how you've behaved lately and you feel like an inconsistent believer. It's because that's the gospel you agreed to. That's the message that you implemented in your life. When you agree, it's just about getting justified from my sins, and it's just as if I'd never sinned, which is true. But when all that is, is your intellectual agreement to that, don't be surprised if your experience follows. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think the truth is found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a 12-minute introduction. Part one. 14. Part one of Remnant is called Salt and Light. Salt and Light. Can you look at somebody next to you and say Salt and Light? Salt and light. All right. We got to take a breath. Let's have a lighthearted moment. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Come on, y'all. Hold them up. Hold them up. Get them in the air. All right. If you would like to remove yourself, new people, we do a Bible drill for people to meet and mingle only if they're ready, all right? It's for single people. If you are single and would like to enter into the Bible drill, leave your Bible up. Everybody else, Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, front row, couple. Okay, we got two and two and two chairs in between you two. How does that happen? Front row, you asked for that. That's great. Everybody, Matthew five. And in case y'all were, like, just know, these two guys, they're going to be at all four gatherings today. So you can come right back at the next one, too, if they don't say anything after this one, all right? Matthew chapter 5. You got to have some lighthearted moments, because this is an intense teaching. Okay, so we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount in context. If you're there in Matthew chapter 5, there's something I want you to see. Sermon on the Mount doesn't happen out of nowhere. It happens in the Gospel of Matthew that's about what? The family of God and the kingdom of God. 
the norms of what it means to walk in this new kingdom that Jesus came to initiate. But before you read the Sermon on the Mount, you need to know what started Jesus' ministry. So you've got the story of his birth, you've got his temptation, you've got his baptism. That all leads up to this moment in Matthew chapter 4. So if you're in uh, chapter 5, look down at verse 17 of chapter 4, and it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If I asked everyone attending Auburn Community Church today to summarize the gospel message of Jesus in one sentence, I doubt we would have anybody say what our Lord and Savior actually said was his message. We would go, sinful, comma, Jesus died, comma, Jesus rose, comma, Holy Spirit empowers me, comma, 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 I'm going to heaven forever. But when Jesus showed up on planet Earth, y'all, this is the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. One sentence. Like, in light of everything you see about your life, there's a new opportunity that's arrived. In other words, the gospel message of Jesus is not an opportunity to go to heaven one day. It's an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God today. Right here and right now. The kingdom of God has come near. This is very different from what a lot of us were taught, including me. Dallas Willard's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount called The Divine Conspiracy is bonus reading for everyone who's interested in what is being taught in this series. I think we actually have some in the lobby, but if not, you can order it on Amazon. Yes, it's big, and yes, it's hard to read. But I want you to read what he says about this verse. He says, this is a call for us to reconsider how we have been approaching our life in light of the fact that we now, in the presence of Jesus, have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes, of taking our life into his life. This is Jesus going, it's here. The opportunity is here. And y'all, I'm not saying that heaven forever is not a big deal. I'm not saying that the forgiveness of sins is not a big deal. It's huge, massive. It's just the starting point of what we're talking about. When Jesus initiates the kingdom, he goes, you didn't have this opportunity before, me being here right now means the kingdom has come. And there's an eternal reign with the king, Jesus. But he doesn't go, hey, put your faith in me and later we'll get to that and we'll talk about revelation and all that. No, he says, like, right now you have an opportunity. So watch what happens. Go down to verse 23 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news or gospel, if you have ESV, of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus travels around preaching this gospel, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he confirms that his message is actually true by performing miracles. The presence of miracles always verifies the truth of a message. It doesn't show off what is mystical so that people go, ooh, that's cool. The presence of miracles is all about, hey, what I actually said is true. And you can know that because that guy's never been able to see. Now he can. That guy was dead, and now he has risen. This is what people found unmistakably true about Jesus' message. Like, I don't know what to do with a lot of what he says, but, like, my uncle got healed. But, like, we got free food going out, and he's multiplying. The, we don't know how he's doing this stuff. The miracles were verifying his message. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, don't you wish Jesus would go into more detail about what that means? Don't you wish that he would like take a moment and expound on what repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near? Like means practically for your life? 
You know how preachers will, will like preach a good message, but you don't really know what to do with it? It's like, geez, I turn from my, I, what do you mean? And, and how does that actually impact my life? Don't you wish he would take more time? Matthew chapter five, verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Y'all, this is it. This is Jesus expounding on what his gospel message means. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, goes and sits down. All right, you want more detail about what I'm talking about? You want more detail about what this looks like? Let's talk about it. But the misnomer, I think, I think what's been misleading to me is I see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount standing on a mountain proclaiming this message like megaphone style as loud as he can. But in reality, he's seated talking to his disciples and going, hey, if anybody else wants to listen in on this, you can come real close. This is what it means for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And don't hit the fast forward button to Romans chapter 8 before you read the Sermon on the Mount. Don't hit the fast forward button to go, well, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Awesome. But let's actually view that within the context of Jesus has come down from heaven with a gospel message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he stops to preach the greatest sermon ever preached with practical implications for your life and my life. And most of us never think about this teaching. And most of us don't wake up in the morning going, that is my ambition. That is my pursuit to follow what my rabbi Jesus said, because I'm a disciple of his way. So with that in mind, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And let's look at what Jesus says when he explains his euangelion, or gospel. It means an announcement. It was political 2,000 years ago, but Jesus flips the script on the culture where a Caesar named Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of God, and he makes an announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near, and here's what his reign actually looks like. Now, I do need to say there are some scholars who are brilliant who don't think this is one sermon in one moment. They think this is a culmination of Jesus' core teachings, which could be true. It most certainly was in moments in front of thousands of people where he taught his disciples. So either way, I believe the context is clear. Jesus teaching a small group of people with thousands in attendance and them learning, what does it mean to walk in the kingdom of God? Here it is, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. If you're there, say, I'm there. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father in heaven. That is the introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. And it begins with a list of things called the Beatitudes. Jesus, what he's doing at the very beginning is he's letting you know that the kingdom he has come to initiate looks nothing like you have ever seen in this world. In fact, it looks completely upside down of the values of the kingdoms and cultures that you see in the world around you. And he begins, this is beautiful, he begins his kingdom announcement with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, poor in spirit, literally translated means spiritually bankrupt. His first announcement is not about good news for poor people economically. It means blessed are those who know that outside of help from another place, you are spiritually bankrupt with no hope. His first announcement is my sermon today and my invitation more than that of my kingdom and my family is this. The people who I first want to talk to and tell them that this kingdom is for them are the people who are aware that within themselves, they would be the last person on planet earth God would choose to be in his family. They're aware of the righteousness that I have, the spiritual qualifications that I bring to the table. If you know you're poor and bankrupt and destitute in that department, you are the perfect candidate to be a part of my kingdom. Flipping it upside down from going, hey, the people who are the most exalted because of their personal righteousness and holiness before God, they don't get what this kingdom is about. This is an inverted kingdom. This is first and foremost for those who are aware that they need God. And so I want you to know today, if my teaching right now seems so far over your head, and you're like, this guy's talking about remnant, and he's talking about actually doing what Jesus called us to do, and I'm still like deciding whether or not I'm actually going to surrender and give Jesus my whole life. The perfect candidate for God to move in their life today is the person who doesn't think they are a candidate. It's the person who goes, he's not talking to me. He has to be talking to someone who's more qualified, someone who's more passionate, someone who was actually into the music when it was happening. Jesus is going, I, I am, and, and a lot of people think that in this moment, I know the chosen did a good job with the Sermon on the Mount, but I struggle with thinking Jesus had every word pre-planned, especially when you watch the way he teaches throughout his ministry. He reacts to a lot of the things he sees. And I think when Jesus sits to teach his disciples and he looks out at everyone listening, the first thought that came to his mind is, poor in spirit. Oh, I got good news for this crowd. This is for you. Now, I don't know your issues. You guys look amazing this morning. You do. Physically, externally, you do. But I feel like if I could see spiritually to every single person in this room, minus Jesus, the culmination of that conclusion would be spiritual bankruptcy. And I look at this room and I go, Jesus says, blessed are you because this is for you. The kingdom is for you. And the Beatitudes are not individual teachings. It's an ascension of maturity. So if you say, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then you would say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now it is true that God is closer than ever to those who are mourning. And if you're mourning the loss of someone you love this morning, I believe God draws so near to you when you're in that condition. But the meaning of this is directly related to verse three. Why are you mourning? Because you're aware of your spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, your sinful condition is not something you laud and celebrate and prance around going, I'm just a sinner and I just sin all the time, but thank God for Jesus, whatever. No, it's something that you actually mourn and grieve. It's something that you feel deeply and you go, I wish this wasn't true 
about me. Right before this service today, I just felt overwhelmed with what's happened over these past seven years and the knowledge that I have over some of my current and continual struggles spiritually. And I mean, you can ask the prayer team, that, that whole stairwell right there was like soaking wet with my tears. Because I keep an awareness as much as I can of my issues outside of Jesus. I grieve the fact that I am the way that I am. And it puts me in a position to what? Be comforted. And so you need to know today, feeling bad about your sin is not about being ashamed and believing God can't use you. It's about taking sin seriously so that you can actually, you can actually create a connection for the comforter to come and move in and through you. That's the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here today and you're spiritually bankrupt and you don't like it, and you're going, I wish there was another way. Jesus goes, you're going to be comforted. I'm real close. And I wish I could talk deeply about each one of these. A lot of these end up being themes that go throughout the sermon. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I've heard this taught in such a way where it's like we should seek to be meek. Not necessarily. Did you see the progression? Jesus is going, you're poor in spirit. You're mourning your sin. And now you're meek. So, so it's like you're, you're, you're ascending, but you're still in this posture of humility that's like, I don't really have a lot to say, and I don't, I'm not really the first one to sign up for God to move in and through my life. What Jesus is doing, he's trying to get you closer and closer to creating the confidence of participation. And then number six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's going, if there's a part of you that's never really satisfied with what you can find anywhere else, this kingdom has come to give you fullness. But I'm not talking about a full belly with food, and I'm not talking about fulfilling every desire that you've ever had physically or sinfully. I'm talking about a spiritual desire to know that you are right with God. And you're growing, and it's going, okay, it's becoming more, it's becoming more. And then the middle one, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now what God has done in you is becoming the way you treat other people. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That there's a purity being developed, that you've gone from spiritually bankrupt to pure. How is this happening? It's because the kingdom by nature changes you over time as you walk in its ways. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then he goes into persecution and basically says, as you are making peace with other people, and as you're trying to encourage them to make peace with God, they will still reject you on account of me. But in that time, know that you are blessed because it is confirming that you are actually a part of the very kingdom that I just announced. And I could tell you so many things about each one of the Beatitudes, and trust me, I want to, but God gave me this message on salt and light. And I want to read this to you in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And when we talk about being the salt of the earth, you can't think, oh, I put salt on stuff sometimes. you got to think, 2,000 years ago, salt was a major commodity. In fact, Roman soldiers, more times than not, were paid in salt because its function in the ancient world was more than just flavoring that went into food. That was part of it. But it was actually a preservative that kept your food good. No refrigerators 2,000 years ago. So this is of the utmost value, and there's multiple different functions of salt that I even saw an Instagram post about this last night, and I was like, gosh, this could end up taking five hours for me to explain the ancient significance of salt and what all Jesus was talking about right here. But I just want to point out that the main point Jesus makes about the salt is not letting it lose what makes it valuable. And he says, if salt loses what makes it salty, you have to throw it out. 
And the only way 2,000 years ago for salt to go bad is if it was contaminated by something else. Salt would go bad if it somehow accidentally or intentionally got contaminated by something that got in. And what happens is as soon as it loses, as soon as it loses what makes it different, what makes it special, it goes out with the rest of the world. It goes out to be trampled underfoot. They would actually throw bad salt on top of the spaces where the world would throw parties. And so Jesus is going, and you're just, you've, you've lost anything good that you have to offer. The reason why in this series we are inviting all of you to be a part of the remnant is because some of you need to be reinstilled to the one thing that makes you valuable and different than the world around you. And you are invited as a Christian to stand out. And some of you have become contaminated. You've become contaminated by how flippant you are with your sin. You've become contaminated by how inconsistent you are in your times with the Lord. You become contaminated by how much you agree with what's happening in the world right now and actually make your value system based on what's being projected from out there. You've been contaminated by getting involved in the cultural war between conservatism and liberalism. You've been contaminated by getting involved in all of these things that don't really become central to the kingdom of God. And your call in being a part of the remnant, the invitation of Jesus is, if you are one of my people, you are the hope of the world. There's a different flavor to your life. There's a different way that you come across to the rest of the world. And I just want you to know, at the very beginning of Jesus' sermon is an invitation to be different. So we spent a whole summer talking about First Peter, what it means to be built different. And, and, and I loved it, and I felt like God moved all summer long, but I just feel like we're jumping into another year where it's so easy to claim allegiance to Jesus and live in Auburn, Alabama, and it not matter that you don't actually live that way. And it not matter that your life really is built on greed and avarice. And it not matter that sexual immorality has just gone to agree with the culture's way, not Jesus' way. And it really, and you could pass as a believer, not just in Auburn, here. Now you look totally normal. And Jesus is going, there's got to be something that makes you different. Something that people look at and go, that is, that is what I was created for. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he says this in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus announces that he is the light of the world, but he says, listen, you're the light of the world. And we know what that means, but 2,000 years ago, they knew it real well. When it's nighttime, there's no cities that are lit up by electricity. You see a city on a hill. And he goes, when the world wants to know where this kingdom is and where there's a new way of living, they look at your life and go, there's something shining from them. And what is it about us that makes us shine? You're not going to believe that the Son of God actually said this. Because the Son of God is teaching theology that is contrary to a lot of the theology that we've agreed to as orthodoxy for a long time. He actually said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Or, better translated, good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying it's mandatory for good works to exist with a participant in the kingdom of God. To some of us, that's heresy. Guys, it's Jesus talking. He's the the one who built this thing. 
And we go, no, good works. Are you talking about I actually have to do something in my faith? No, 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 no. Religion says do. Jesus says done. Apparently, Jesus says do. Apparently, he says that there's a light, and that light is your deeds that are standing out to the world around you. And so what makes the remnant stand out is that their faith is activated, not theoretical or not a belief system that they ascribe to but don't actually live in accordance with. And so I want to announce to some of you today, this is about activating your faith and doing something with what you are hearing today. Here's a good way of saying it, and you can write it down. God is opposed to earning. God is not opposed to effort. There's a difference between the two. Some of you are uncomfortable with everything I'm saying today because you're going, it sounds like he's saying we got to earn our way to God. No, 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 no. Earning is done by Jesus. But when he makes you right with God, there is a gospel-centered, spirit-filled effort that is required for participants in the kingdom of God. So if you know that going in, you're like, I wish Jesus would have told me that at the beginning because I just, he did. This is his first sermon in Matthew. I don't know. Guys, we literally hit fast forward on this and went to Romans. We did. And we got to actually look at this to go, okay, he says I'm the light of the world and that by my effort, not an effort to prove anything but an effort that responds in gratitude to the one who proved it for us. Remember, it began with spiritual bankruptcy. And now, before we're at the end of the introduction to the sermon, we've got Jesus going, you have to shine a light. And I promise I'm almost done. Keys, you can go ahead and come up here because I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. But I'm just dreaming about the day. What would happen if we flipped the script on what's normal? What would happen if the masses at Auburn Community Church became Prayer warriors who are devoted to seeing the kingdom of heaven come on planet earth. And y'all, I just get nervous because I see willing people all over this room. If I was in this room and looking around at people who are just bothered by the conviction they were experiencing right now, I wouldn't have hope for what we're dreaming about for the future of this church. I'm looking at a group of people who's actually enjoying being disciplined by the word of God right now. I'm looking at a group of people who know that they are disciplined by a father who loves them and who is for them. And so right now, I get nervous because I'm going, wait a minute. If we steer this thing to focus on what actually really matters, we might end up being a part of a kingdom movement of God that ushers in the coming of Christ on planet Earth. And I don't know when it's going to be. It could be a thousand years from now. But I believe if it is in our lifetime, Jesus is returning to a praying bride. He's returning to a bride who has washed her garments in the blood of Jesus. And he's returning to a bride who's beautiful in his sight. And I just believe that there's a part of heaven looking down at Auburn Community Church now. And we're going, come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's the dream. Transform us. Don't forget this. Transform us from being consumers of Jesus' merit to being disciples of Jesus' way. The invitation to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is an invitation to ascribe your life to a brand new way of living, not just ascribe your life to a new set of beliefs and doctrines. Some of you today will be saved for the first time in your life, even though you thought that happened when you were seven. And the whole way God had you on this journey, but I think for the first time, some of us are coming to see 
that the invitation of Jesus is a come and die invitation, but it's a come and die that you may really live. And everything that Jesus is about to teach, yes, it's impossible. Yes, it's difficult. And here's where we're going in this series. But practice is required. That we're actually going to practice what he preaches to us and we're going to learn over time. Because you will never do what Jesus taught or do what Jesus did until you learn to live like Jesus lived. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus going, this is how I live. And I'm willing to walk with you and lead you and convict you and push you every step of the way to make sure you don't stop one inch short of the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. You could settle for less, y'all. You could settle for a version of spirituality that's just lip service to God and worship every once in a while, or you could step in to the greatest story forever told. And I'm not hyping this up for you just to get you theoretically excited about it. I actually mean it when I say, when the spirit of God gets a hold of your life, the adventure in front of you is beyond your wildest imagination and dreams. So let's do it together. Let's stand up all over this place. The band, the choir is gonna come up here and we got some worship that we need to proclaim to God. And I got good news as this sermon ends. You do not want to miss what I'm about to say. So I know they got to walk up here and they got to get all set up and as much as you can right now to make sure you're not distracted. I want to throw an ending on this sermon that I think will confirm all of you in this room to know that you have been set apart to participate in the kingdom of God. Here's what's great about the doctrine of the New Testament that Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that to be a part of his kingdom, you have to be born of God and born of the spirit. So everything I taught today about the norms of the kingdom of God and what it means to participate in the remnant, here's how you can know if you're in the remnant. You are born of God when the Holy Spirit planted in you ruins your taste for all other alternatives. So even if you hate it, if as I'm talking, you're going, yep, I'm I'm gonna give my life to that. And it's painful and it looks nothing like what my friends' lives look like, but I, I can't do anything else because I find that grace irresistible and I find his mercy overwhelming. And man, I, some days I don't even want to follow him, but I have to. And every time you walk into sin, there's a part of you that just like, it makes you sick and you go, this isn't really who I am and I don't know what's happening. Congratulations, you have been born of God. You have. That's amazing. And if that's not where you are, I hope in our prayers that the Holy Spirit would get you there. In this moment, we wanna lift up a simple song. It says, Jesus, all I want is to be like you, God. And I want us to lift this up like we have never lifted up a song in the history of this church. Heavenly Father, fill this space as we sing. Heavenly Father, help our voices to rise. Help us to believe what we're actually singing right now. Come on, believe it, come on. Now. He knows you're in it. He knows you're in it. Come on. Jesus. Oh.